open your Bibles with me, please, to 1 Peter chapter 2. We will continue our look into 1 Peter. We will be reading the first 12 verses. The Old Testament reading today contained verses quoted in our New Testament passage. So I hope you will recognize them. We'll be particularly looking at verses 4 through 8, or yeah, 4 through 10 of 1 Peter chapter 2. But we'll read the first 12 verses. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak evil against you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You know, there was a time when we as Gentiles were not given access to the throne of grace. We would have had to travel all the way to the land of Egypt, or, yeah, the land of Israel, to see the temple of the Lord, to hear the word of the Lord, to to know the great things that he has done, to know the promises. And Peter is giving us great encouragement that even though we are facing now great trials and great troubles and great tribulations, which were tearing the Roman world apart, persecution of the Christians, even to the point of death, the sorrows and the troubles that that brought, he is now telling them that there is hope. You are God's people. And that is where we are looking this morning. We'll start at verse 4, but first let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do pray, Lord, that you would lift up our hearts and encourage us through your word, that we might have understanding of the things that you you say, and that we might be able to change not just our hearts, but our lives. 
based on what we learn and what we know. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So he starts off in verse 4 saying, You have come to him, to Christ, to the living stone. And we have all come to him for salvation if we are here. That is what Jesus called us to do. Remember in Matthew chapter 11, verses 27 through 30, he says, All things have been handed over to me by the Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He has called everyone, not just in Israel, but around the world, to come to him. He says his yoke is easy. The word of God tells us what that yoke is, to to obey him, to love him, to glorify him, to serve him. Now to the world it seems very hard and very heavy. But to the believer we know that it is a joy to do what he wants because we are pleasing our Lord, our Master, our Savior. But not everybody accepts that. Not everybody could accept what he was offering, even amongst his own people. He says in John 5, 39 and 40, You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. But it is they who bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. We can come to him for life, but people don't want the life he offers. They don't want his burden, his yoke, because it is not pleasing to our sinful nature. It is not what we desire in our natural self. But believers, we all come to him. When our heart has been changed, when he's taken out that heart of stone and given us that heart of flesh, caused us to desire him. We look to him and we see, oh, these things are good. We have, as we talked about last week, tasted that the Lord is good. And his yoke, his burden is not hard. It is easy. It is pleasant. He tells us that he is the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said that to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All the Father who gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out, John six, thirty-five and following. You know, we know that offer of salvation is there, And we have accepted it, and we have come to him. But it's more than that in this passage. The word translated come to him is really a participle, coming to him. And it's linked then to the verb we see in verse 5, and being built up. And so the idea is we are coming again, always coming to him. Not once and then we never come to him again. But that we are coming to him over and over again. We come to him... In prayer, we come to him in worship, we come to him in the word. We come to him as the source of our life, of our joy, of our nourishment. And we come to him constantly. And we are then being built up. Now in the Old Testament, the verb here, to come means, well in the New Testament, it means to come or to draw near. And in the Old Testament, they translated it to Greek and they used this word. And 
in its context, it's usually used to talk about when coming to God. It's, it's talking about coming to him to hear him, to worship him, to pray to him, to offer sacrifices to him. Places like Deuteronomy 4, it says, you came there and stood at the foot of the mountain. The mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness, cloud and gloom, and the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You know, they had come to him to hear him, and he spoke to them from the mountain and gave them the commandments. Of course, we remember what happened next. They went to Moses and said, let God speak to you. We don't want him to speak to us anymore. We're too afraid because of their sin. But they drew near to him. And in Leviticus 9, Moses says to Aaron, draw near to the altar and offer your sin offering and your burnt offering. Make atonement for yourself and for the people. And so that drawing near was to offer atonement for the people of God. In Hebrews, we see this word a lot as people are drawing near to God to worship him and to serve him. And in chapter 10, verses 19, he says, Brothers, since we have this confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, it's the reference to the curtain that divided the holy place from the most holy place in the temple. The most holy place had, of course, the Ark of the Covenant. And God was enshrined there. The Shekinah glory was there over the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place. But he's saying a new and living way has been opened for us through that curtain and through the flesh of Christ. And since we have such a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith as our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting the meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So the idea is that there was a, a curtain that separated us from the most holy place, and we couldn't draw too near. They drew near to the outside of the tabernacle, and God spoke to them, or spoke to Moses, and Moses spoke to them. But they couldn't come all the way. But now we can draw all the way to the mercy seat, because we have Christ. And we are to draw near to him, to come near to Christ, the living stone. What a great privilege. Once only the priests could do that. And the high priest could only do it once a year, because the way had not been opened. But we now have this great privilege. We are priests to God, draw near to God. Now, one of the things that came out of the Reformation was this idea that we are all priests of God. All believers are, and it comes from passages like this one. The, the problem being, the, the, in the Old Testament, you, know, you had to be a Levitical priest to come into the temple, into the holy place. Only the high priest to the most holy place. Roman Catholicism picked this up and they said, we are between you and God. You do not want to have a, a relationship with Jesus. That's dangerous. The current Pope said that you know, it's very dangerous to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Now, we stand between you. We will take care of things. 
And at one point, it was a capital crime to read so much as one word of the Bible if you weren't a priest or a monk. They wanted to make a distinction, and the Reformation comes, and they say, no, the Bible says we are all a holy priesthood, a nation of priests, a kingdom of priests. We come to God directly through Christ. We don't need men. We don't need saints. We don't need your charades. We now have access to God. What a great and what a glorious thing that we come directly to him to make those sacrifices those spiritual sacrifices. In Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your body as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Now we are coming, drawing near to God, near to his house, to offer these spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God, Peter says. And Paul says that we do that by being transformed into the image of Christ, by being drawn near to him in truth. In the book of Hebrews we're told that through the Old Testament priesthood, they continually offered up a sacrifice of praise to God. And that for us, that is the fruit of our lips, acknowledging his names, and we should not neglect that at all. But that we should be drawing near to him to praise him, to glorify him. We don't need to stay afar off. We've received the adoption of sons, we are children of God. We are priests of God. We can come to him directly at any time and at all times. People sometimes fear, oh, but my sin or my worthlessness or my stature in life. You know, I, I, I can't draw near to the king of kings. But the king of kings and lord of lords has said, you are my son. You are my child. Come to me. And in that coming, we are being made into something. Notice what it says. We are being made into a living house. We were ransomed from the futile ways of our forefathers. We learned in First Peter chapter 1. And by the blood of Christ. And now we have the truth and we can draw to him in that truth. And he is here is expanding upon that Old Testament analogy of Christ being the living cornerstone. Uh, we'll talk about that more in a minute when we come to that passage because he mentions it twice here. Uh, I'll put that off for a few minutes. But all of Christ's people then are also living stones. Christ, the cornerstone. You understand the cornerstone, they, they would lay the cornerstone, make it secure, and then all the measurements for building a building were done off of that to make it square. And so that was like the key piece Everything else was built on that. Nothing was built apart from that. And he's using that as an illustration of Christ. We are built upon Christ, the solid rock. Everything else, shifting sand. We are built on him. But we also are stones, spiritual stones, not physical stones. And the house of God is built with the stones which are us, the believers, the people of God, the holy priesthood. 
It's an interesting analogy, but these stones are precious to God, just as Christ is the precious cornerstone. And that spiritual house must be consecrated, must be made holy to God. You know, how can we be bricks in the, in the house of God if we are unholy? And so through obedience, Peter has already called us to, to purify ourselves, uh, to make ourselves ready for the work that he has given us. And we are not physical stones, not a physical house, not a physical temple, not physical sacrifices of animals. Those things were the types of the Old Testament. But we have the real, the true, the heavenly things revealed to us in Christ. And we worship him in, in that true spiritual environment, not in a physical environment which was a shadow of what would come. And so he's calling us the house of God because we're being built up bit by bit into his temple, his house, his church, where he can be worshipped and where he can be served. And we're being made into a holy priesthood. It's a great honor that he doesn't just consecrate us as a temple to himself and dwell in it where he's worshipped, but that he makes us then also the priests. Now, if all of us are kingdom of priests, what are we priests to? To God, but what, who's on the other side? Well, all of the unbelievers. In reality, we are presenting ourselves as those living sacrifices. We are offering ourselves as a sacrifice, our life. But our, our sacrifice is also our testimony. You know, the way we live our life, the way we reach out to people, the way we treat people, is a testimony to who God is. And it is part of not just our worship, but our priesthood. And because we've been born again through the word, we read in chapter 1, and have grown up on the pure spiritual milk of the word, we, we saw last week, and grown up unto salvation, that is how we are able to then offer those spiritual sacrifices that are pleasing to God. And that is how we all become priests of God, by offering ourselves to him as a living sacrifice. In other words, we have died to sin and we live for him. We no longer live for the pleasures of this world. We live for the glory of God and the kingdom of God. And as a living spiritual house, we are that living stone that makes it up, makes up that house. And Jesus, he tells us in verse 6, is the precious cornerstone. In verses 6 through 8, Peter takes the Old Testament teaching about Christ coming and his being a stone and expands upon that and explains it to us. Now, many of the things given in the Old Testament were hard to understand. And in the New Testament, they are made use of and explained. And this is one of those things. Jesus is the stone that was laid in Zion, the cornerstone, the precious chosen cornerstone. Whoever believes in him shall not be put to shame. Verse 6 is actually quoting Isaiah 26, 16, or 28, 16. And Isaiah has censured Israel and its corrupt leadership. He's telling them their, their horrible wickedness, their apostasies, and he's condemning them for them. 
But in the verse where Peter's quoting, he's making a new promise. He's promising them that their faithlessness, their covenant breaking, will not stop God from restoring his church. Which at that time, I love the way John Calvin puts it, it lay wholly in ruinous state. In other words, the church was no church. The people of Israel were not Israel. They were living in apostasy against God. But he will restore his church by laying Christ as this precious cornerstone chosen by God. Now, we've already talked about how the cornerstone works, but this is the cornerstone that was chosen. God has said, I will lay this particular stone so that the building will be the building I want it to be. And then I will build upon that building with the saints who are precious stones in, in Christ. And it says that whoever believes in him shall never be put to shame. Paul quotes the same passage in Romans 10. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. As scripture says, everyone who believes in him shall not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now that is a great promise that comes all the way from the Old Testament. This rock will be placed, this cornerstone. And those who trust in him, those are the ones who will be saved. They will not be put to shame. But he goes on in the next verse, verse 7. It is honor for you who believe. Everyone who acknowledges before men, Jesus says in Matthew 10:32, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. And it is a great honor to be acknowledged by Christ, to have our sins covered by his blood, to be his brothers, his sisters, to be children of God. It is a great joy for all of us who believe by faith. But he goes on to quote the Old Testament again, this time Psalm 118, verse 22. He tells them the consequence. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. God is telling them, this is the house I will build for you. And by rejecting the cornerstone, what are you saying? They have rejected membership in that house. Jesus uses this very quote, this very passage in his teaching. And I want us to read that. It's a bit longer, but it's in Luke chapter 20, verses 9 through 18. It's a parable of a man planting a vineyard and the wicked tenants. Luke chapter 20, starting at verse 9. Jesus knew before he was incarnate, before he was born, how he would die. And he tells them this parable to explain it to them. It says, A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went to another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, and they beat him and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. 
He said a third. And this one also they wounded and cast out. The owner of the vineyard said, what will I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus understood they had rejected the cornerstone, him. They had rejected not just him, not just God, but the way of salvation that Christ represented to them. Salvation by faith. The vicarious atonement, the Jesus' blood paying for the sins of his people. We've talked about this a number of times lately. Man cannot pay for his sins. The price is infinite. It's never enough, the Bible says, that he should escape the pit. The torments and the lake of fire go on forever and ever. But Christ being God, his death was of infinite worth. His blood atonement is of infinite worth. It can pay for the sins of his people completely. But how did the Jews see salvation? Well, in Jesus' day, they felt that if they did what God said in his word, like tithe their mint and cumin, that that would cancel out one of their sins, that there would be weight in a balance. And as long as they had more of their own righteousness acts than they had sins, they would be good. And that was their way. And they didn't like God's way, God's cornerstone, Christ. They didn't want his building, the church, the temple. They wanted their own. And so they rejected the cornerstone of our faith, which is Christ's death on the cross. Very sad. But it is where they went. They followed their own imaginations instead of Christ, instead of Scripture. And so he says in verse 8 that Christ is a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. Quoting Isaiah 8:14, which we read, but I'm going to read again. They will come to the sanctuary. Or he, he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Notice first, he is a sanctuary to whom? Well, to those who put their hope and their faith and their trust in him. He is a sanctuary in times of trouble. No one is mightier than him. Nobody can snatch us from his hand. Nobody can thwart his plan. Every word from God's mouth will come true. Nothing man can do. He is our sanctuary, Christ. But he is a stone of offense to the others. I want to be my captain of my own ship. I want to be in charge of my own salvation. I want to accomplish my own great things. And thus they cannot put their hope in Christ. They cannot say, all of my righteous works are as filthy rags, as Isaiah tells us. They cannot say that and trust Christ. They find him an offense. 
Paul gives us a little more understanding about this in Romans 9, chapter 30. When he says, what shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. They had all broken the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. Behold, as it is written, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, Peter and Paul teach much the same things and use much, many of the same verses as they are both speaking through the same Holy Spirit. We should expect that. But it was hard for the Jews in that day. And this passage in Peter is hard for Christians to this very day. Read the last phrase in that verse. As they were destined to do. Men do not like that phrase. Many churches today rage against it. They stumble over those words. What does God mean? Well, Paul explains it in even more detail in Romans 9, back in verse 18 through 26. It says, God has mercy on whom he wills and hardens whom he wills. It will say to me, then, why does God find fault? Who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and one for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make his power known, has endured with patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but from the Gentiles. As indeed Hosea says, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. Paul is quoting the same thing that Peter is quoting in verse uh, verse 10 of Second Peter chapter, or First Peter chapter 2. You know, it's a tough thing that people struggle with, but the word of the Lord is the word of the Lord. And God has said what he has said, and he has done what he has done. Uh, we don't have time to go into this in great detail, but God has shown us a great mercy. And we can rejoice that it was not based on ourselves, not based on my wisdom, not based on my righteousness, not based on my holiness not based on my works, but on his choice, his love. And we thank him for that. So the spiritual house that we're talking, that Peter is talking about has been built with living stones, with Christ as the chief cornerstone. Many have stumbled over it, but for those he has called, he has brought in. He has made them his children, He has given them his word, the pure spiritual milk that helps us to grow up unto salvation. And he has placed us in his house. But we have a purpose in that house. We have a place. We are called 
for his own possession. We are to be his people. That's an Old Testament promise. In fact, all three of those, the royal priesthood, the holy nation, the people for his own possession, that is what he told the people he was bringing out of Egypt. That is what he told the people of Israel, you will be. And he called upon them to be obedient. Many rebelled, many stumbled over the stumbling stone, turned aside. But all the promises made to them have now come to us. Continuing further back in Romans chapter 9, verses 6 to 8. It's not as though the word of God had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. The children of promise meaning through faith. And so we become children of Abraham. We become part of this structure. We become bricks, spiritual bricks, spiritual stones because of faith. And we were brought in. And so his, the stumbling of some in Israel was not a sign that God had failed, but a sign of God's plan that not all of them would be granted mercy, as we have been granted mercy. The Jews of Jesus' day really isolated themselves from the others. They were not priests to the world. They were never a kingdom of priests. The promise was made to them in Exodus 19, by the way. Verses 5 and 6. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words that you so speak to the people of Israel. The problem being, if indeed you will obey my voice and keep my covenant. They did not. But that promise has now come to the New Testament church, as Peter points out here, that we have been called by God. We have been born again by God. We have been fed on the pure spiritual milk of the word. We've grown up into our salvation. We have been made this building through our drawing near to him. And we therefore are God's people, his possession, his treasured possession, his kingdom of priests, his holy nation. And that is the church. And that promise was to us as well as to them, a people belonging to God. Now he is quoting, as I already mentioned, from Hosea, a couple of different passages. He says in Hosea 1.9, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people and you are not my God. And then Hosea goes on in, in the end of chapter 2, or towards the end of chapter 2, verse 23, he says, And I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy, the name of one of the children. And I am not, and I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he will say, you are my God. Uh, the promise in the Old Testament was there, if you've ever read the book of Hosea, it's a little hard to read and a little hard to understand, but they're, they're telling us that this is referring to us, the church. Even though we were not his people, 
He has shown us mercy. And he has given us a purpose. He called us out of darkness, it says. That, and that's one of the promises in the book of Isaiah, chapter 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you with joy at the harvest. You, they are as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Now we have been brought out of that domain of darkness, First Colossians 1, 13. The domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have the redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You know, we've been called out of that darkness into the light of God, and we are to be the light of the world. Matthew five fourteen through 16, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You know, we have been called to be his people, to be his kingdom of priests, his holy nation. We have been called to be part of the building, the church that he is creating so that we can glorify him. And all of the world sees the Christian and they see what we do and they see how we act. And they see every hypocrisy we do. They see every sin we do. And we should weep for that, but we should remember then also to try hard to do the things that are obedient. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. We look through his commandments and we try to do what is right so that we can glorify him so that we can enjoy him forever, so that we can be what he has called us to be, and so that that day will come when he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. So let us <clears throat> remember our place as that holy nation, that holy priesthood, that people for God, and live our lives remembering we're just sojourners and pilgrims here. This is, I think, next week's passage. And we will be with him for all eternity. That is our home. That is our life. Uh, this is just what we go through on our way to get there. So let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do pray, Lord, that you would bless us to be that light of the world as your Son is that we would live our lives as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you, that we would remember that we are no longer living in darkness, but that we are on display to the world to see you through our lives and through us, your children, through us, your priests, through us who have been saved. And we ask, Lord, that you would give us the wisdom and the strength to live 